Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. everybody. Well, welcome back to the Equip You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to talk about something that is really, really important. It continues uh, our exploration of the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, We're making our way through these terms and ideas, and we come today to talk about what is known as the hermeneutic of suspicion and we're going to talk about biblical interpretation we're going to get into a lot and i mean a lot of history uh on this episode and so it's going to be really really important you might want to take some notes or have a notebook or even listen to this one a couple of times uh it's probably going to be a little bit longer than we usually go but um It's going to be a really, really important and insightful episode for you because you know what? I've said it before. I'll say it again. What we do with the Bible is really, really important because it reveals what we're going to do with about God and about the person and work of Christ and so much more. And so having a right understanding of God's word is absolutely critical, as we've been talking about here now for a little bit, uh, because it's going to affect how we live our lives. It's going to affect how we deal with uh, paradoxes and uh, various verses. It's going to affect how we deal with these uh, contradiction, apparent or supposed contradictions in the Bible and, and how we deal with gender and sexuality and morality and ethics and on and on and on. And and the thing is, is uh, we have good answers as Christians to these issues. And so we don't have to be afraid of the history. We need to understand what the Bible teaches about itself and about the history of, uh, of interpretation. And so we're going to talk today about uh, a little bit. That's a large conversation to have, but we're going to we're going to dive into the, some of the history a biblical interpretation, and, and we're going to talk about <clears throat> we're going to talk a lot about those who oppose this tradition, and so I think it'll be really good. So, starting off, and the hermeneutic of suspicion—it's a phrase coined by Paul Ricoeur. He he sought to capture a common um, spirit that pervades the writings of Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. And in spite of their obvious differences, he argued, these thinkers constitute a school of suspicion. That is, they shared a commitment to unmasking the lies and illusions in his word of consciousness. These are the architects of a distinctly modern style of interpretation that circumvents or obvious or self-identified meanings in order to draw less visible and flattering truths. 
And so Ricoeur's term has sustained an energetic afterlife within religious studies, especially in philosophy, in intellectual history, related fields, but it never really took hold in literary studies. So why has a field that's devoted so much of its intellectual energy to interrogating, to subverting, to defamiliarizing, found so little use for Ricoeur's phrase? Well, one of the central problems with the hermeneutic of suspicion is that it fails to be suspicious about its own methods. That is, it doesn't take its own counsel seriously. And, and furthermore, a hermeneutic of suspicion is self-defeating. It should be suspicious about its own method of suspicion. Ludwig Wittgenstein taught us long ago that doubt can only come after belief. We, so we need to start with belief and trust before we can even begin to practice doubt and suspicion. In fact, a careful analysis of Speech Act reveals that trust must and most often does precede suspicion. In fact, the Jesus Seminar took, has taken it, taken this to the furthest point, the implications of the dominant biblical scholarship, defiantly claiming that much of what is found in the New Testament was fabricated by the evangelists, or as, a, as a, at the very least, unreliable. Many Catholic exegesis, they, they practice essentially the same hermeneutic, the, the interpretive system, without even being quite so radical. And, and the more moderate among them sometimes engage in a kind of sleight of hand, uh, implying that the evangelists did not purposely fabricate parts of their narratives but simply never intended their accounts to be taken as historically accurate, something of which modern scholarship has finally become aware of. But you see, this moderate position, though, is untenable and would be accepted neither by the members of the Radical Jesus Seminar nor by believing Christians today. In fact, the hermeneutic of suspicion is animated by faith. By contrast, Hermeneutics may be approached by the demystification of meaning presented by the interpreter in form of a disguise. And so this type of hermeneutic is characterized by a distrust of the symbol as a dissimulation of the real and is animated by suspicion by a skepticism towards the given. Again, Ricoeur suggests that it's a latter type of hermeneutics which is practiced by Marx and Nietzsche and Freud. All three of these masters of suspicion look upon the, the contents of consciousness as in some sense false. All three aim to transcend this falseness through a reductive interpretation and a critique. Well, such a view is telling. In fact, uh, we talk about it in the history of biblical interpretation as higher or historical criticism. Now, historical or, or higher criticism, it, it's the careful historical background of each book of the Bible. Now, that's by itself not a bad thing, understanding the context, the culture, and, and so on and so forth. But the presupposition behind much of that was to cast doubt that that was its aim to cast doubt on the authority of the Bible 
and to bring it into question through supposedly understanding its background. Now, now we today we engage in you know this kind of study uh, to understand the background and the culture and so on and so forth, and that's not bad. So don't hear me say that this is bad. But the problem is, is that historically what has happened is those who have practiced higher or historical literary criticism, they sought to destroy the Bible. These were people who held to theological liberalism. And this this resulted, this study uh, traditionally from theological liberals, of using higher criticism. Remember, it's the careful study of the historical background of each book. They sought to overlay and to bring into ill repute the history of the Bible and its context, to use it against itself, if you will. This led to the denial of miracles in the New Testament. In fact, they thought that the New Testament writers were frauds because of their study. And it also led to the rejection of reason and duty in religion. One group of men who stood against this, well, one group of men who stood against higher criticism were the Princeton theologians of Princeton Theological Seminary, of the Reformed Tradition and the Westminster Confession of Faith. These men were men like Francis Turretin, Archibald Alexander, uh, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, they defended over and against these attacks the, the Bible's truthfulness and trustworthiness. They held the line over and against the, the philosophy of the day, which was mostly evolution, seeking to undermine the especially the, the opening uh, 11 chapters of Genesis and more. They, they held the line, and they saw themselves, it's important, following in the long line of men and women who have stood fast on the scriptures and for a historical understanding of the doctrine of scripture as the reliable, trustworthy word of God. Very simply, those who are theological liberals are those who believe that that they believe in a theology from below. They believe that scripture and our feelings run on the same train tracks. Whereas men like B.B. Warfield and the Princeton guys, theologians and uh, conservative theologians today, they hold to a theology from above, which takes the Bible to be the word of God, inspired, verbally, plenary, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, clear, and binding word of God. And over, over and against this, is those who are wanting to, as the history has shown, they want to bring into disrepute the Bible that they don't even believe in. And so this is why we need to understand where arguments come from and do as Second Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. And we, and we do this out of love. We do this because... These things, as we're about to talk about here for the next while, as we talk about, quote-unquote, progressive Christianity for, for the next good while, uh, this is reigning terror on churches. And by the way, people, it needs to be said that 
that the churches and the denominations that have adopted a theology from below, that is, that is scripture and our feelings running up the, the side, uh, guys, they have adopted views that say women can be pastors. Uh, where anything goes, uh, you know, uh, gay men and women can be or, or ordained. Uh, we don't have any church discipline then. And and on and on. The, the consequences when you have this view, Scripture running at the same level of our feelings. The, the, the thing is, is that the Scripture is binding on our lives. So biblical authority is undermined. If you undermine biblical authority then guess what? Uh, you're going to go and veer wherever you want because as Romans 1 very, very clearly states, guess what? We are we are the creature and he is the creator. And so we need to understand this very, very clearly. So uh, that's that's where I wanted to, to talk about that. But just for a second, but it's under it's important that we have a good understanding of that as we move forward, as we talk about, quote-unquote, and, and if you're listening to this, I use quotation marks here. For those of you that are on video, you just saw me use quotation marks. For progressive Christianity, it's nothing new. Quote-unquote, progressive Christianity is repackaged theological liberalism. It's already been addressed by the church, by the by the Princeton guys. You see, this is why what we do with the Bible reveals what we believe about the Bible. And it's really, really important to understand that because the only way to know the revealed will in the word of God is in the scriptures. That's the only way to know God has revealed himself in the scripture. And this is why, this is why the hermeneutic of suspicion, if you will, it is so dangerous because it casts doubt on the Bible. And instead of coming to the Bible, believing that it is the word of God that is inspired and errant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative on our, on our lives, and it's enough, we cast doubt on it and we cast suspicion upon it. But, but the opposite of this is biblical hermeneutics, which hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. And we get this idea of hermeneutics from Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The word interpreted is where we get the word hermeneutics. That's the art and the science a biblical interpretation. And now I told you that we were going to go really, really deep into church history, and this is where we, we go. We're going to go really deep into church history. The early church fathers in the second century found much of their, their truth and teachings of the apostles. These men had to fight many rising heresies, such as Gnosticism, other false teachings that threatened to dilute or even destroy the faith. And beginning with Ignatius and then progressing with Justin, Irenaeus in 140 to 202 AD, and Tertullian in 155 to 212 AD, there developed the idea that to correctly read, to interpret, to understand the Bible, 
One must study under the guided authorities of the bishops of the church. Well, this seemed like a very necessary approach at the time to safeguard the early church uh, from the growing heresies. But by the time and through the work of Irenaeus, the Old Testament scriptures were understood to point to Christ through the types and the shadows. His work provided the key for theological interpretation, which found its, its total focus in the incarnate Christ. And as a result of this approach, a rule of faith was developed uh, and most interpretation needed to pass through that rule. Well, at the time in the school, in the theological circles of Alexandria, creative biblical interpretation shot off through the work of Clement 150 to 215 AD and Origen uh, 185 to 254 AD. The style of Christian allegorical interpretation developed. Christian allegorical interpretation, it intends to say something more than what the literal wording suggests. That is, the Bible has a deeper, a mystical meaning together with the plain meaning. Origen used a basic two-step approach to interpreting the scripture, whereby the Bible student first discovered the literal, the plain meaning, and then the supposed deeper spiritual interpretation. Well, you see, the Alexander School of Biblical Interpretation was challenged by the leaders of, uh, of Antioch, where the, the school of, of Antioch Biblical Interpretation arose. These were brilliant scholars like John Christendom, 347 to 407 AD, the Theodore of Mesopotamia. They emphasized a literal historical approach to the Bible. They focused on the biblical writer's aims, the motives, the usage, the methods in which a literal historical sense of Scripture was primary, and through it, moral implication and application followed. Well, as the church approached the 5th century, Augustine of Hippo and Jerome established the course for this period, and they emphasized a more balanced approach of Scripture, emphasizing the literal meaning, the allegorical meaning, and above all, the theological meaning. Martin Luther, uh, that great reformer, and Erasmus, they pushed forward a strong return to the earlier principles taught by the school of Antioch of biblical interpretation. If these men and their reformer, the reformers rediscovered the priority of the literal historical sense of Scripture, that is, they, they believed the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant, infallible, uh, clear, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. And so Luther broke the stronghold of allegorical interpretation of Scripture, feeling that he must stress the historical sense, which will in turn provide a framework for sound doctrine. He insisted that the Bible, Luther did, is its own best interpreter. That is, how we understand the Bible itself will affect how we interpret the Bible. That is so important that we understand that because uh, it'll, it'll affect, uh, especially as we get into cults and talking about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so on and so forth, it's going to really affect how we understand these things and then how we respond to them. If we believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, that, that it's clear, and that it's uh, sufficient and authoritative for our lives, then we will come to the Bible 
and we will respond with the Bible itself to the arguments being advanced against it. But by the way, the Bible is its own best apologetic. It's its own best defense when rightly understood because we come to it as the very word of God given by God. That's what I mean. Why I, 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 I've been saying that it's important for us to understand what the Bible is because it affects what we do with the Bible. Well, John Calvin, one of the pivotal figures in biblical studies during the Reformation period, his influence throughout the history of, of Christianity since the Reformation. I mean, we, we, we could talk about that for a long, long time. But he developed the grammatical historical method of interpretation that focused on the meaning of the text in its historical sense. That is, what it meant to the first hearers in their situation and during their time period and then deriving all the spiritual messages directly from the text. Well, Calvin said, since it's almost the interpreter's only task to unfold the mind of the writer he has undertaken to expound, he misses his mark or at least strays outside of his limits by the extent to which he leads his readers away from the meaning of his author. Well, lastly, both Luther and Calvin formed the Christological, that is, a method of interpretation centered on Christ that we see Christ himself using in Luke 24. That is, all scripture has as its primary purpose to reveal Christ and the, his redemptive work, and thereby all scripture must be interpreted, applied, and experienced in its revelation of Christ and his work. Well, Christians believe that the Bible is God's revelation of himself and that it teaches us about his will for man. But this basic presupposition is sometimes qualified or muddied, if you will, by other views. Four different approaches to scripture that is naturalistic, supernaturalistic, existential, and dogmatic need to be recognized. These approaches often yield different uh, interpretations of the same passage. First, uh, it's, it's common to isolate these four general approaches. I'm only going to mention them. And then I'm going to talk about uh, the evangelical view of the Bible. First, Scripture may be rationally and equated with any other literature. Second, Scripture may be viewed reverently as a supernatural book. Scripture may be viewed existentially by way of personal experience. Scripture may be viewed dogmatically through a system of doctrine. It's important to see that, that we all approach the Bible with our own viewpoint and our own presuppositions. And so we're now going to consider how different sections of the Christian church viewed the scriptures, starting with, as I mentioned, the evangelical view of the Bible. Well, evangelicals hold the Bible to be God's written word. But we know that beliefs within evangelical circles vary on the doctrine of inspiration and revelation. Uh, one fundamentalist, quote-unquote, fundamentalist approach to scripture may emphasize the divine involvement in production to the exclusion of any human contribution. Likewise, a dogmatic approach to the Bible may limit its message to a fellowship or even a denomination. And yet, generally speaking, conservative evangelicals take the view that Christ and the apostles viewed the Bible as a document written by men, to be sure, but at the same time, whose source was God himself. Uh, this view embraces what is called a grammatical historical approach to Scripture, 
an approach adopted that we're talking about that is the reason why I preach expository messages and think that this, uh, by the way, the reason that I preach expository messages is because verse by verse messages. It, it, and the reason that we talk about scripture is because scripture, it, it goes back to the approach believing that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, uh, clear, sufficient, and authoritative word. It, it leads to dealing with what the text means. And so, so my doctrine of Scripture affects what not only how I'm going to come to the Bible, believing that, that God has spoken very clearly in this text, and that my job then as the as an interpreter of scripture is is to understand what what the author intended author's intended meaning what he what he said what did he mean so i have to understand that i have to understand the background that's why we're not against the background because we have the right convictions about the bible they influence as as we're going to talk about here towards the end of the show they influence how we interpret the Bible, how do we deal with uh, challenging texts and so that people can be equipped and know what the text means? Because the text has a meaning that God intended, and we only can understand that if we come to the Bible to unpack and to understand what did this author mean in this text, in the context, and in the day— and then only then can we even begin to get into how is it how does it speak to us today? So we're going to talk about biblical interpretation here in just a little bit, but I, I do want to say that just at the out uh, before we before we get to that. Well, evangelicals believe that the Bible is God's word. They reject the view that it that it just contains God's word as insufficient. You see, they believe this because of Scripture's internal testimony. They believe this because of the, we believe this because of the unity of the Bible. All 66 books uh, of the Bible have been written over a period of 1600 years by some 40 different authors written on different continents in two or three different languages using uh, different literary styles. The unity of the Bible is truly extraordinary. But, and yet this unity is evident in its consistent witness to the one God. It is true that they're different. There's differences. Some would say contradictions. That's why I say supposed contradictions, because there are no contradictions in some passages, but these can be explained. In fact, continued research over the history of the church has dealt with uh, these difficulties. They've, they've provided answers to them. In fact, even archaeology has given support to the many biblical statements about the places, the events, and the people. And the witness of, of Jesus Christ to the inspiration and authority of Scripture has to be faced. A disciple of Jesus must accept the Master's view and how, meaning how Jesus viewed the Bible himself. And so, the literary excellence of the Bible it suggests it means it's it's inspiration, it's divine inspiration. And so, as a library of books, the Bible represents some of the richest in all of the world's literature. The divine authorship of the Bible can be, can be sensed in its moral laws and its judgments. Laws such as found in those in the Ten Commandments have a universal application. Born-again Christians testify to the transforming power of Scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit 
in their lives. Now, this uh, influence is an ongoing one. It begins with conversion. It, it continues in our sanctification. The prayer of Jesus for his followers in John 17, 17 is this. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That is realized in the scriptures. That, that's the only way that we can know it. The Bible tells us from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and everywhere in between, in between about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is concerned with God's relationship with man and the Bible uh, and man, excuse me, and man's relationship with God. As such, evangelicals refer to its infallibility, that is, without the possibility of error, as we've talked about, and inerrancy without error. So we, we affirm that God's word is infallible because God is infallible. And so if we affirm that God speaks through the Bible only, we must speak of Scripture's infallibility. But the word infallible requires careful definition. J.I. Packer says this, infallible denotes the quality of never deceiving or even misleading, and so means holy, trustworthy, and reliable. Inerrant means holy, true. And so scripture is termed infallible and inerrant to express the conviction that all its teaching is the utterance of God, who cannot lie. That's, that's in Titus 1, 2, by the way. And whose word, once spoken, abides forever, and therefore it may be trusted implicitly, Packer says. Hmm, that's good, really good. Another way, another way to understand infallibility is without the possibility of error or, or even incapable of erring. Both accord with how the church has defined that term. Now, inerrancy means without error, like infallible. The term it, it, it refers to divine inspiration. Bruce Milne says this: If the Bible has been supervised down to its very words by the God of Truth, we can be confident that it will be free from error. And thus, whenever the Bible prescribes the content of our belief, that is our doctrine, or which means teaching, or the pattern of our living, ethics, or the record of actual events, history, it speaks truth. Again, we must make clear that the degree of inerrancy, remember, without error, claimed in any particular passage, it's relative to what the text teaches. And so when a passage of Scripture is interpreted uh, in accordance with the, the writer's intention and in harmony with other biblical passage, it is without air, truth will be plainly perceived. Well, we may need to talk a little bit about uh, more about infallible and inerrancy. First, the terms are not used to suggest that the biblical writers had irrefutable revelation into every realm of human knowledge. The Bible isn't a scientific textbook. It tells us about the person and work of Christ, the beginnings of the world, and so much more. Jab Packer says this, it, it claims, referring to scripture, it claims in the broadest terms to teach all things necessary to salvation, but it nowhere claims to give instructions in, for instance, any of the natural sciences or in Greek or Hebrew grammar. In reference to the Old Testament, Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And secondly, the term, it refers to the infallibility and the inerrancy of the biblical teaching, not to any man's interpretation of that teaching. And nor does the reliability of scripture depend upon any human being's 
experience. Well, evangelicals believe that the Bible consists of revealed truth, that is, of verbal statements about God, his purpose, his will, his prediction, his promises. And this is contrary to the belief of some biblical scholars who state that God has revealed himself solely in acts of history. And so revelation, according to that view, it comes through salvation history and not through any pronouncements. And such a view dismisses the the testimony of sacred history, and it limits the ability of God to communicate with with his people. Well, the subject of of inerrancy, it's been a topic, uh, a hot debate among evangelicals in America uh, for a long time. It culminated uh, in a lot of ways in the Chicago Statement on biblical inerrancy in 1978. You had men like R.C. Sproul, Jay Packer, uh, uh, James Boyce, and many others. If you don't know those names, I want to plead with you. Uh, Norman Geisler, I want to plead with you to go and read their work on this. It's, it's excellent. And, and if we read the Old or the New Testament, we're left with the conviction that, that God has communicated with people through their experiences and his word. For example, the Old Old Testament story of the Exodus would not be the same without the stories of Moses and his divine call to lead his people. So belief in verbal revelation may be held as necessary truth. So what, for example, will we make of the person and the work of Christ without an explanation? How could we arrive at convictions about his divine nature and saving work without theological interpretation? Well, for a start, according to the Apostle Paul, we would view Christ's crucifixion simply as a human execution or a divine cursing. And Jesus would then just be an example of how we live and how we die. And yet following from what we've said, it should be observed that God's act and God's words are closely interwoven in the scriptures. You cannot tease divine sayings out of the narratives that reveal the actions of God and leave the story intact. And at this point, the Bible challenges our faith, we accept its testimony or we reject it. And here is the statement. Since God is the author, all the Bible is wholly trustworthy. And since the Bible is the word of God, it is absolutely trustworthy in its all overall message and in each part of the revelation. And this is where we come to talk about the liberal Protestant view of Scripture. Now, in comparison to what I just described, Naturalistic approaches to the Bible allow for nothing supernatural. That's why they deny the supernatural. That's why they deny the miracles. Rationalism came with the Enlightenment. It followed in the wake of the Reformation. And once men were able to think for themselves, supposedly, and the sciences became dominant, the authority of the church and and Scripture was challenged. The problem is, is that rationalists rely on their own reasoning as the ultimate authority. And liberal Protestant theologians, quote-unquote Protestant theologians, I I use that in air quotes, because to be a Protestant uh, historically means that you believe in Sola Scriptura, and they don't believe, liberal theologians do not believe in Sola Scriptura. So they're not Protestant, uh, just historically speaking. But these, these liberal theologians, they take a rationalistic view of Scripture. They say that the Bible may contain the word of God along with many errors, they say. So ideas of revelation and and inspiration are often rejected by liberal theologians. 
And furthermore, the reality of the mir miracles of Christ and Satan and demon creation by the word of God, the second coming, heaven and hell are repudiated. They're, they're rejected. And so then human reason and, quote unquote, the spirit of Christ is maintained, are, are needed in which parts of Scripture are true and then which parts are false. And so so then you have a the matter that that instead of God giving us the all 66 books of the in the word of God, uh, then you have the problem uh, that you run into very often. Well, I don't like this part of the Bible, so I'm going to take that out. Well, at what point does this stop? And the answer is, historically, it doesn't stop. In fact, in the case of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, what they did to answer this issue is they just retranslated the Bible to suit their theological interpretation, to support their, their church, quote-unquote church. Well, so-called higher criticism has received a bad name due to the fact that many 19th and 20th century biblical scholars were rationalists whose views were colored by colored critical studies. We need to update our awareness here. We live in a postmodern age where the authority of science and technology has been questioned and even reevaluated. All knowledge is now taken to be meaningful. The rise of New Age religions are evidence to the fact that spiritual experience is now taken very seriously. And the statement here is a generalization, I know. It's so easy to pigeonhole scholars and misrepresent their, their beliefs. But the point is, is that we, in the, especially in the West, and with the rise of New Age, we over-spiritualize things. And we need to understand that everybody is coming to the Bible. The question is whether they believe the Bible to be the word of God, or as we talked about recently in the last few weeks, as Gallup reported, that uh, the, the fairy tale and the myth option. And why are you coming to the Bible? Are you coming to it to understand more of who God is and what he's like and how he has revealed himself? Because that, that belief will lead you to read and study the Bible, to dig into the treasure that's there not to cast doubt on it or to be suspicious of it. There's another view, the neo-Orthodox view. Well, while rationalism is outmoded, it's subjectivism. It's, it's all about what I feel, my, my truth. Existentialism majors on human experience, my experience, how I see things, how I feel about all these things. This is colored approaches to scripture in the 21st, or in the 20th and the 21st century. Uh, we could talk a long time about that, but uh, we talked some about that a few weeks ago as well. Some Protestants believe uh, a view uh, called neo-orthodoxy and existentialism. Some Protestants believe the Bible to be God's word only in the sense that it contains God's word. And so furthermore, it only becomes so God's word by personal faith. The Bible is not then, it does not contain objective truth in that view. Existentialism places an emphasis on the individual. It sees an irrational leap of faith, a shot in the dark, necessary in order to experience a word from God. Soren Kierkegaard, 1813 to 1855, is often called the father of Christian existentialism. He reacted against the formality of the Dutch Reformed Church and the way that people seem to lose their personal identity as they entered the church. His religious works include Fear and Trembling, The Concept of Dread, Karl Barth, and Emil Brunner, John Bailey represent neo-orthodoxy.
And this school holds that God has revealed himself in acts rather than words. And to barf, the word of God is not a revelation in itself. It's an instrument of divine disclosure. It's personal. It's not propositional. For barf, the word is Christ. The Bible witnesses to Christ. Christ to Bruner is the word in scripture. What matters is man's encounter with God. So evangelicals take the orthodox view that the Bible is God's word. Liberals believe the Bible contains God's word. Neo-orthodox hold the, the belief that the Bible may become God's word through our experience. But you see, only one view, the orthodox view, is correct. Only when we hold to the orthodox view can we practice biblical hermeneutics. That is the art and the science of biblical interpretation. And that's where we're going now. We, we have talked about all these views that counter a, a, a biblical understanding of the Bible itself. They all reject, a, except for the evangelical and the Protestant view and the Reformed view of the Bible. They, the, all the other views, they all reject. They all reject or they come into conflict with uh, the, what the church has taught about the Bible itself. And remember, we have to have a right understanding of the Bible to even begin to rightly interpret it, to even have a conversation about biblical hermeneutics, which is why we took the time to talk. I took the time to talk about that and why now we can finally talk about engaging in biblical hermeneutics because we believe the right things about the Bible. Now, first, interpreting the Bible, hermeneutics is a science and art of understanding, translating, and explaining the meaning of a text. So identify the kind of literature your text is for insight into its meaning. Bible scholars call this the genre of the text. That means that the general form the text takes, the narrative, prophecy, poetry, history, gospel, epistle. The various kinds of literature present their meaning in differing styles and with different structure. Narrative texts do not operate the same way epistles do in getting their message across to the reader. The, the variety in literary forms can become a complicated studies. Biblical scholars go beyond the, the basic forms mentioned here to subforms with subtle differences that uh, the ordinary reader might not notice. Often they disagree with one another about these various subtleties, and in spite of these technical distinctions, the preacher, the, the student of God's word, can still recognize the text form and how it affects the meaning. Second, consider the context of the passage for a greater understanding of its meaning. This is often considered the first and even the most important principle for accurate interpretation. Biblical scholars use the term context to discuss various aspects of the original writing of the text, historical, social, political, religious, and literary. And it's this literary concern that is in view here as we talk about the context of the passage. The biblical writer follows a logical line of thought as they write. What they say in the previous verses or chapters and what they say in the ones that follow will help make the text in question clear. So taking the text out of that context, it risks misinterpreting it. It often clues in the surrounding uh, verses will open aspects of the meaning in your text that would otherwise have been missed. Third, read the text for its plain meaning and its obvious meaning. A common and even a persistent myth about the Bible 
is that its real meaning is hidden behind the surface message. And so even though the Bible uses symbolic or figurative language, most of it is clear to the reader. And so even when you do not know about the people, the places, the events in history, you can grasp the point of the text. The use of figurative language in Scripture only enhances the plain meaning of the text. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you complain about the splinter in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own, Jesus said. Even though this is figurative language, we have no trouble understanding what he meant. His use of the metaphor makes it very clear. Fourth, try to discern the writer's intentions when they wrote the text. The principle of intentionality is critical for the expository preacher. See, you study the text not to find a sermon in it, but discover the writer's intended message. And unless you can learn the intended meaning of the text uh, writer, this is author own intent, you're not going to be able to preach or even to get the right meaning of the passage uh, in your Bible study, in your sermon, in your article, in your book, or anything. Remember, the text cannot mean what it never meant. Discovering the writer's original meaning, it's your first task as you prepare to write an article or if you're a pastor uh, to preach a sermon and so on and so forth. Uh, so the intended meaning of the of the text writer, the biblical writer, will also uh, be the intended meaning of the Holy Spirit who inspired them to write. As you read their words, you're dealing with the revelation from God. Remember, all scriptures God breathes, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's breathed out by God, uh, Theopanustus. The same Holy Spirit who inspired these words in the first place wants this message to be preached again through your sermon. He wants you to teach it in your articles and your tweets and so on and so on your podcast and so on and so forth. And the way you want to teach teach scripture is in line with the Holy Spirit's purpose. Because remember what the Holy Spirit wants to do with the word of God. He wants to take the scripture that you read, that you study, that you uh, you hear preached, and he wants to take it and apply it to your heart and your life. So fifth, look carefully at the language of the text for what it means. You see, words carry thought and words have meaning. And so the words of the text are all we have of the biblical writer's thoughts. If if they hadn't written it down, we wouldn't know what they're thinking. And so we can look closely at their thoughts. We can examine each one carefully for the part it plays in his, in his message. And also look at how the words and the phrases connect with one another, how those sentences are constructed. And if you can study the text in its original languages, you're going to gain greater insight into the meaning. Many preachers, they use Hebrew and Greek, and they have studied it for years in seminary and Bible college, and they know it. But even if you can't read your the Bible in those languages, you can still use lexicons. You can still use word studies to guide you. And through your, though, if you're a pastor, you, you're regularly preaching, your congregation probably isn't interested in the Greek or the Hebrew, your study is still going to open insights that's going to make the message clearer to them. And you can do this without even going into detail about the tenses and the forms and the original languages. Six, notice the various theological themes in the text. And though a text has one intended meaning, it can have a number of significant theological themes. It can also have a number of, of different applications. And so when you work on and write down your observations as you study God's word, you need to list those themes and what the text says about them. Identifying these themes and understanding how they relate to one another in your text is the most, most, most helpful key 
grasping its meaning. These same theological themes are going to show up in different combinations in various texts throughout the Bible. And you're, if you're preaching the text, uh, you're, you'll try to discover the best wording for the writer's subject and the modifier that limits and focus it. And you'll look through the text for predicates, the various things the writer is saying about their subject. And the theological themes in the text will give you what you need for these tasks. Seventh, last point. Might have one more after this. Seventh, always take a God-centered perspective for interpreting your text. This means looking at the, the text in terms of what it reveals about God and his dealings with his creation, particularly man. This is theological interpretation. It arises from the conviction that the Bible is really God's means of making himself known to us. Remember, this is the revealed will of God in the word of God. And so what Scripture says about God is always going to be central to every text. The Bible was not given by God to tell us about ancient religious people and how we should all try to be like them. It, it was given to tell us about the faithful men whom they either served or denied. Their response is not the central message. God's revealed will and his involvement with his creation are. And so even texts that give instructions about how we should be behave, they reveal something about God. You see, friends, just wrapping this up, one last thing. What we do with the Bible, it either reveals our confidence and trust in God, who Titus 1-2 says never lies, or it reveals our lack of confidence and trust in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is sufficient. That is, that it is for every phase and every stage of life, or if you prefer, the sufficiency of Scripture means that it's for faith and practice. We are living in a time, brothers and sisters, where there is a great deal, a great deal of our population in the world who wants to come and view the Bible, and they don't even know that they're doing it because they've been taught to do this in, in schools all over the world, to view the Bible with suspicion. You know what? The Bible is, you might have heard it, the Bible is antiquated, right? So the Bible can't possibly speak authority to me, authoritatively to me today about my gender, about my sexuality. It, it, it can't possibly tell me about my decisions and, and how God expects me to, to live. It, it doesn't answer the Bible according to this view. It doesn't deal with the questions that I have. And so therefore, to me, not to what the Bible says, to me, then the Bible must be doubted. Friends, this is the central issue of our day. This is why we're taking the time to work through these things in the way in which we're doing. This is why I took the time today to explain why the Bible is under attack. And make no mistake about it, if you attack the authority of God's word, you are attacking God himself. There is no other way to know God other than to know him as he's revealed in the word of God. And that means something. It means that when you come to the Bible, you're going to believe what the, what the Bible teaches about the origins of the universe. And you're going to take it seriously. You're going to take it seriously when, when a, a, a God created man, he, he instituted marriage, right? He made Adam and then he made Eve from Adam's rib. You're going to take that 
literally, you're going to take that seriously. And you're also going to take it seriously about Adam's disobedience and the consequence of it, us being sinners by nature and by choice. See, and, and you're also going to take it seriously when it says in Genesis 3.15 uh, about the, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, which that's what Christ came to do. He came to pay the penalty in, in our place and for our sin, our sin, and to rise on the third day. Christ was born under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that you and I justly deserve. And how do we, how do we even begin to, to know that? Well, the only way that we can know that is it's because it's revealed explicitly, clearly in the word of God. And so to know these things and many more, you have to know them because they've been revealed to us. And God has made his meaning very clear and very plain to us so we can know them. And, and furthermore, this is, why, this is why we can know who we are. We can know, I can know that I'm a man because that's how God has made me. And that's how God has assigned, uh, has, has said, this is what Adam is. I'm a man. And, and Eve, how are we going to know what a woman is? We know this because of the word of God. We know this because God assigns to a man a specific gender, namely a man and a woman. He assigns a specific gender, a woman. And, and this understanding frames the very reason why God created man for woman, not just, not just for, uh, you know, so that they would have kids, although that's certainly true, but also to join them together in marriage under God for life. That's why we as Christians say, that marriage is one man and one woman for life under God. Friends, we know these things because they are explicitly, and I mean explicitly clear in the word of God. This is why the Bible is under attack. Rather than believing that the Bible is the word of God and it means what it means, our culture and uh, ever, ever since for a long time now has sought to attack through the scriptures through this hermeneutic of suspicion. And instead, we as Christians need to stand fast. We need to stand on the word of God. God's word is enough, friends. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is clear. It is, it is sufficient. It is authoritative. It's infallible. It's for our faith. It's for our practice. So let's not only be shaped by a right understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, but then let's our practice, let's let our practice, let our lives be, be shaped by the Bible. And then may it shape our practice and the way in which we do life. In other words, may the, the Bible presents the way in which God views the world our, and, and also the way in which we are to see our world. And so let us respond. Let us respond by, with grateful hearts. Not out of duty, but, but out of delight to this God who has revealed himself to us, who didn't even need us. He created us out of, out of the inner Trinitarian love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, let us make man in our image and likeness in Genesis 1.26. That's amazing. And let us dig into, let us mine the treasures of the word of God. 
and let's believe God. Let's take him at his word. Let's stand upon scripture. Let's deal with arguments from the word of God and, and against it with scripture. Scripture is its own best defense. Scripture is its own best apologetic. Scripture it's its own best interpreter. And we, we can stand upon the word of God. We can deal with objections. We can, we can, we can mine its depths. And we can respond to, to false teaching with the word of God. God stands behind the word of God. God is immutable. He's a God who never changes. Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 9 tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so let us stand upon our God who has revealed himself in his word. He is a God who never lies. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Well, friends, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Until next Monday and Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.